Welcome to Faith and Freedom Fighters. I'm Robert Muse, co-founder and senior counsel of the American Freedom Law Center. And as usual, I'm joined by my fellow freedom fighter, co-founder and senior counsel, David Yershami. I want to begin uh, this uh, videocast, podcast, with, uh, with an interesting story discussed by Tucker Carlson in his opening monologue on June 22nd. This monologue, like, uh, like most, was published as a story on Fox News. And I've, uh, I posted this story up on our, um, on our Facebook page. I'm going to try to do that when we talk about some of these different news stories during our video cast podcast. Um, you can uh, likely find them on our Facebook page, uh, American Freedom Law Center. Now, this article is titled, Tucker Carlson, Scientists Want to Use Human Engineering to Solve Climate Change. Very interesting article. And he he's discusses in, in part, and this is what I want to focus on, this uh, conference it was held. It was it's called the World Science Festival. It was this the conference was held a, a few years ago, but it featured a professor of bioethics and philosophy at New York University. Uh, the gentleman's name is Matthew Liao. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing it correct. L I A O, who apparently is a uh, influential world class bioethicist and he explained that climate change can be solved with something called human engineering and uh, here's a direct quote from this uh, from this bioethicist during this conference quote my view is that we need what we need is a really robust ethical framework and within this ethical robust framework I think there's a way going forward where we can do this ethically but there's actually a lot of opportunities for this to solve big world problems. One thing is climate change. Climate change is a really big problem we don't really know how to solve, but it turns out we can use human engineering to help us address climate change. End quote. Human engineering. And one of the examples that he uses, um, he talks about how he himself is intolerant to certain foods and You've heard the, those who uh, support this climate change narrative that somehow cows contribute substantially uh, to climate change. And, and so he suggests that we ought to have, um, you know, through some sort of uh, either creating a pill or this human engineering, make people intolerant to certain meats, to red meat. This is what he says. So here's a thought. We have this intolerance, for example. I have milk intolerance. Some people on into are intolerant to fish, so possibly we can use human engineering to make it the case where we are intolerant to certain types of meat, certain types of bovine proteins, so that's something we can do through human engineering, possibly address really big world problems through human engineering, end quote. I mean, this is, this is so absurd, but it's absolutely frightening. And before I, I uh, bring David on this conversation, I want to make one point. David sent me this story, and I was looking at it online. And what I found quite hilarious is right after this section where this bioethicist was talking about how we uh, ought to human engineer people so they have an intolerance towards red meat, you know, particularly hamburgers and that type of thing. Um, all of a sudden, based probably on some uh, Internet algorithm, Google algorithm, a McDonald's commercial popped up, a little McDonald's ad, uh, you know, selling hamburgers and hot, uh, hamburgers and cheeseburgers and fries. <laughs> and right at this point where this gentleman was talking about how we ought to make people um, intolerant to, uh, to these types of foods. So it, this, is, uh, this is dangerous, crazy stuff. 
So, David, I want to welcome you to the podcast, and, and I know you have a want to say a few words on this issue more broadly and this story more specifically. But before we do, we mentioned in our last podcast that you are a world-class triathlete. And this past Sunday, you competed in an Ironman um, triathlon, a half uh, triathlon. And uh, just give our, our audience uh, an update on, on what was the outcome of that race. Well, it was an interesting race. It was a half Ironman, 70.3 miles. So that's why they're called Ironman 70.3 which is a 1.2 mile swim, 56 mile bike and a half marathon. The full Ironmans are just double those distances. There were, um, first of all, it was like 100 plus degrees and the humidity was in the 80s for the days leading up to the race. And then a lightning thunderstorm moved in in the morning. And so the race got delayed, delayed, delayed. And finally, by the time we got started, in order that people could finish some of the slower folks, they cut the course in half from 56 to 28 miles. So I, my goal was to kind of set a new world record for my age group, but that was off the table since it was a shortened course. But thankfully I was able to still win my age group uh, this time, not with the margin I had in Texas, which was over an hour, but at least by four or five minutes. So um, it wasn't my best race, but still came out with a win. So I was, I was pleased. Well, that's awesome. So, uh, Give us your take on this human engineering to help solve the climate change problem. You know, first I want to I want to give a hat tip to Tucker Carlson. He really does some good work. Um, I will say that my our discussion of his work last week on the indictments for the January sixth um, events um, was was our my hesitancy to embrace his view of the indictments uh, is probably strengthened. Um, I think he might be reading those a little bit more aggressively than he can, but that's for a different day and a different discussion. Um, although I will say that the the opportunity for bad behavior by the Department of Justice and the FBI, given their history um, and the politicalization of the last 10 years or more, certainly since the Obama administration, uh, would give one pause to give them any uh, uh, kind of preference. presumption of, of presumption, good faith yeah. <laughs> yeah. presumption of and, innocence right yeah. so and, and let me just just uh, just for uh, briefly for our, our uh, listeners and viewers um, on our last podcast we talked about the monologue Tucker Carlson had uh, about uh, where where there's indications that you might have had federal agents who were actively involved in organizing and instigating the uh, January 6 protest slash riot at the um, at the Capitol. Um, he did that based on uh, wordings in the indictment and which itself is, a, is interesting how they did it because they didn't follow what would be the traditional uh, or typical, I guess, protocol for the attorney general for naming unindicted co-conspirators and so forth. So that's what uh, David's uh, referring to. But continue, David. Sorry about that. So what's interesting and just so for our readers, um, the reason why cows have become enemy number one in the global warning, warming debate is also one of the reasons why the cow is a kosher animal. It chews its cud and it has a multi-level, multi-layered stomach and it, it regurgitates the food after a first level of digestion and then they chew on it and swallow it again. Well, part of their burping, their regurgitation is the release of methane gas. And so that's one of the, uh, um, 
supposed causes of global warming. And so cows are enemy number one in that part of the world. In addition to the fact that many of those types tend to be, you know, against eating meat as well. So what's, what's really interesting about this article from my perspective is the idea of a expert bioethicist. Right. And by the way, what did this bioethicist also recommend in addition to making people um, genetically um, intolerant to meat was to actually the idea that you could genetically engineer your children to be smaller so they would consume less. And be and easy to transport. <laughs> so you're, and easier to transport. Seriously, right? that's what he said, to use less fuel in the buses because you're not carrying as much weight. And, 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 and his... Um, his reference point was the fact that because we've gotten healthier over the years, we've gotten bigger, taller, fatter. And if we could just re-engineer our children, um, they'd be cuter, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's silly. But the, 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 the real kind of thought problem is the idea of a scientific bioethicist. Because what is a bioethicist? And, and how does one become a world famous bioethicist as if, as if one could gain some deep understanding of ethics and in, in, in biology? Well, think about it. A bioethicist is nothing more than a kind of scientist. They have scientific backgrounds that starts with certain assumptions about what is ethical, but these are simply assumptions. They're not garnered from some transcendent truth. They're whatever people agree should be ethical. So one of the key ethical components in this world is consent, right? You shouldn't be able to do experiments on individuals or modify human engineering without their consent. So that's where you get in hospitals and in research papers the important informed consent, right? Because you can get consents that aren't truly informed. So their expertise is simply a technical expertise. How much, how do you get a consent and what, what constitutes an informed consent? The other area is in the um, ethical review panels before doing research, where they have to look at when you're conducting research, for example, on a potential medicine that's going to cure a disease. So a proper experimental design is you have one group that gets this, that's sick, that gets this medicine, and one group that does not get the medicine. And both the subjects and the experimenters are blind to which group is getting which, so that their biases don't creep in. Well, obviously, if you're signing people up to an experiment where they've got a disease and an experimental drug which hasn't been fully tested yet, that's why they're doing the research, is given to one group. How much do you have to tell them about those risks? And by the way, how much do you have to tell the poor people who aren't getting any medicine? They're just a, the, the, you know, the placebo group. And they're, they might even think they're getting a medicine, but they're not. Um, another part of an experimental design. So that's what a bioethicist is. But a bioethicist can't tell you what is right or wrong, what is moral and immoral, 
because that's not in their field of vision because they deny that. They deny as a group of scholars any kind of transcendent truth. And what they've simply done is agree as a group that um, we can get away with this kind of experimentation if we get this kind of informed consent or if we don't. So the idea that one scientist, now of course, the, the view of this one scientist and, and Tucker, you know, he's on a TV program. So it's a bit of hyperbole that science wants to engage in human engineering. Well, there's no question that there's enough scientists that want to do this kind of thing. And what they'll do over the number of years is they'll start having conferences and papers and compendiums and peer review, and they'll start developing their new ethics behind human engineering. And what will drive that? This is going to be their moral primitive, their brute fact. They're going to base it on the fact that global warming like COVID-19 is an absolute existential threat to human existence, period. And given that massive existential threat, just like COVID-19, we can get away with all kinds of things. In other words, it changes the ethical requirements because the risk of global warming in their view is so existential, so threatening that while you might have resisted any kind of human engineering based upon today's ethics, because there is no transcendent truth, there is no ethical truth, the ethics get to be modified. And so they'll rise to the level of the threat. So while you might not have been able to engineer my children to be a certain way by force or by covert genetic engineering, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, a year from now, those same ethicists in scare quotes will be telling government officials and bureaucrats, you can do this because the threat is so great. In the same way they're telling us now, university students at state schools are being told, you can't go to school if you don't have vaccines. Hospital employees, doctors, nurses, staff members are being told, you can't work at Methodist Hospital, wherever that was. I think, I'm not sure where, what state it was in, unless you get vaccine. Over 100 people have, been, have quit or been fired. It's only going to continue, and that's because there is no view of the individual soul and individual integrity and innate natural rights. There's only this idea that all rights, all liberties are relative to the risk. Yeah, and, and that, you know, that dovetails quite well in all the litigation that we're doing, right? Because we're seeing this public health crisis, right? All of a sudden, the government, is, we're faced with this public health crisis, so the Bill of Rights no longer applies, right? So we're not even talking about, you know, just even the conformed consent issues and so forth, but just our fundamental constitutional right, our right to be left alone, our freedom, our liberty to choose you know, what medicines we want to put into our bodies. And these, I mean, these cases are so important. This, this COVID-19 and you know, the left is seeing it because they're even making claims because they've been making claims now, I've seen in light of COVID-19 saying that climate change is a public health crisis, right? And so now we're getting used to, all of us are getting used to COVID-19, forcing us to, you know, wear a face mask, forcing us to get vaccines, forcing us to do, shutting down businesses, closing down the They've they've in, they've encroached upon our liberty so much, and it's they're looking around. I think and they're saying, look what we were able to get away with, and look what the courts 
are allowing us to get away with. Now we're hearing climate change is a public health crisis. I've heard also, I think it was Fauci that said, uh, you know, gun violence is a public health crisis. Well, there goes your Second Amendment. So these these are real encroachments on on liberty. Um, in addition, you know, to the issue of ethics and so forth, but on our fundamental freedoms and how far are they going to go? And the fact that you would even have scientists that would consider that this is a way to, you know, if you're going to solve a broad problem, um, you're going to need it to be more than just an experimental group. This is going to be something that they're going to have to impose upon many people in a very broad way, just like they're doing with these COVID-19 um, you know, policies restricting our freedom and then, you know, relying on so-called scare quote science, which we've discussed many, many times. It's not really science. It's their political agenda, which they are dressing up as science because they don't really have the science to support these, uh, you know, the, the restrictions that they're imposing upon us. So this is, this is a, a you know, and, and when you talk about human engineering, oh my goodness, I mean, we're, we're heading down some very, very dangerous, uh, dangerous road. But I want to dovetail, unless you have another point, here, I just want to dovetail this because I do want to get some of our cases. Go ahead, David. Yeah, let me just jump in real quick. You know, we talked about this before. When global warming became the, the big cause celeb for the left, um, the initial discussion at the political level was that it is a national security risk. And the argument was that both the geological changes, raising um, uh, water levels, ocean levels, et cetera, but that the, the instability that would be caused around the world um, and the um, vulnerability of many nation states would create um, national security risks for the United States. And that was really championed in the Obama administration Right? It's one thing for the politicos to talk about things like that, but it became part of the, the discussion and the dialogue in the intelligence services and at the Pentagon. They literally started talking about and planning for national security issues relating and defense issues relating to global warming. Well, that didn't catch on. Um, and one of the critiques by the left of the Obama administration was that global warming just didn't go anywhere, the whole fight. And I would posit that the reason for that is because the left and progressives don't care about underscore national security interests. Because progressives and the left disdain national existence, that there ought not to be borders, there ought not to be nation states, we're all just one global community, that that argument about a national security risk just didn't hold. When they experienced COVID and this public health risk, which is global, right? It's a global pandemic that caught on and they, they embraced that notion. And so now what you're going to find is that every cause by the left is going to be a public health crisis that's going to allow them to exercise enormous totalitarian control. And the reason being it's global, it's not national. We're not being ethnocentric or national centric. We're not just concerned about our nation. We're concerned about the world. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, I, I, I forget where I saw, I saw an old news 
article. I know when I was growing up, you know, it was the greenhouse gases. You couldn't use hairspray, right? Anything that was aerosol was going to burn a hole in the ozone and, and we were all going all gonna to roast and, and how we were all going to be dead in, uh, you know, in, I forget, it was, you know, 15 or 20 years. Well, that article was written like 30 something years ago. So here we are, right? AOC said we're all going to be dead in 12 years. Was that like two years ago? So we got 10 years left. I'm going to check my calendar and let me show you how I date. Let me show you how I date you by a decade. So when I was about that age, the big scare was the global freeze because temperatures were, and we were told we were all going to go into another ice age. I remember that distinctly. Then it became global warming. That's why it didn't really catch on because we were, we were whiplashed from, <laughs> up, from, from an ice age to, to melting down in heat, right? Well, hey, in, in line with this, uh, you know, the discussion of this enforcement of these, uh, you know, COVID restrictions and the vaccines, um, there, there's a kind of a new interesting update on the COVID-19 vaccine, which we've addressed. And, you know, we said, look, this is experimental. Um, it's, it's actually quite dangerous to many people uh, who, who uh, you know, when you weigh the, the risks and the benefits that shouldn't probably get the vaccine. But again, that's an individual choice, but not what the government's doing. As you mentioned, you know, in some universities, they're requiring the students, and we're talking college-age students, right? Healthy students, people, who, st individuals who who uh, really have very little risk um, from this disease, unless they have, you know, some serious comorbidity or, you know, so, some other, you know, some factor. Um, but on average, no risk. But the, there was something the World Health Organization just came out with that uh, apparently social media didn't like, right? David, why don't you fill us in? Yeah. So. So there was several articles last week on the fact that um, Facebook was censoring uh, individuals who were simply um, reposting the WHO, the World Health Organization's um, uh, guidances telling young people and especially young males not to be vaccinated, that there were um, outstanding questions of risk, right? The enlarged heart issue, There's and there's others, that given the low risk of infection and any kind of um, bad outcome for young people, the risk-benefit analysis from the WHO was in a guidance that young people should not be vaccinated. Well, Facebook found this to be contrary to um, the guidance that they were getting from the U.S. government and started censoring those that speech. And again, this goes, this kind of segues Rob into our litigation, but this goes to the, this unification of purpose between government, public policy officials in our government and big monopoly power social media. And that combination is inordinately dangerous because in the guise of protecting science, which again, the WHO guidance on young people not getting vaccinated is not science per se. Science again, is just measuring things, measuring outcomes, measuring this. The WHO guidance is based upon a public policy risk benefit analysis. And that's something that bureaucrats can do but each individual can do. And our position here on this podcast has always been what government should have done at the beginning of this crisis is 
keep us informed about what science does say and what it doesn't say, and keep us informed about the risks, but have each individual adult make those choices themselves. And they can do certain things and, 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 and engage in protective measures, but to enforce upon us their risk-benefit analysis deprives us of our liberty. And even though we tell people that you have the, the um, intellectual capacity to vote and make decisions about who's going to lead our life, but don't have the intellectual capacity yourself <laughs> to make your own decisions about your life is, in a word, a bit contradictory. Yeah, and, and you know, the irony, because um, as, you know, people who've been listening to our uh, podcast, watching our video cast, know that we're uh, preparing litigation against Facebook for their censoring of one of our podcasts where, I think it was back in April, we discussed at the time what the, the circumstantial evidence demonstrating that the, uh, that it was quite likely, certainly plausible, that the virus was leaked from the Wuhan lab. Well, you know, who's, who's getting the last laugh on that? But anyway, so they censored us and they took it down. It's still not up. And even as of today, they, they've censored, even though our discussion was exactly correct and the evidence keeps mounting in favor of our position on that or our discussion on that. Um, but they relied on their COVID-19 community standards, which they cite as the primary source for those the World Health Organization. So the very standards they use to censor us, their, you know, their gold standard, I guess, as it, as it was, the World Health Organization, now they're censoring the World Health Organization's guidance because it doesn't fit whatever narrative that they, uh, that, you know, big tech and the Biden administration want to, uh, want to convey. So, I mean, the, the hypocrisy of these people is, I mean, you can, you can cut it with a knife. So, you know, one of the things we've been, we've been kind of promising we were going to be doing is just give some case updates. And uh, too often we get involved in these discussions on the current events and we never get to that. And uh, so uh, we kind of shortened our discussion on some of these current events. We have other issues that we were going to talk about. But we decided not to because we want to get into just some updates to give all of you an idea of some of the litigation we're involved in. And this isn't even all of it. I mean, we, we, we wouldn't even have the time for it. Um, and I'm going to start off with uh, David has two cases out of New York, which are which are quite interesting. Uh, one is Page versus Cuomo or Cuomo, and the other one is uh, Geller versus Cuomo. So, David, if you want to fill in the listeners on on where we are, what these cases are, the first one, the Page uh, versus Cuomo, and and uh, you know where it stands and so forth. So, actually, I'll reverse the order because that's the order of the litigation. So, in Geller v. Cuomo, uh, we represent the plaintiff, Pamela Geller, in a lawsuit against Governor Cuomo, against the New York City Mayor de Blasio and his police chief, because they had issued an order early on in 2020, um, outlawing uh, public demonstrations. And we sued on the basis that it violated First Amendment freedoms, that whatever and, and the reason we sued was because they had all kinds of exceptions for other public gatherings, walking your dog, bicycling, whatever you wanted to do, but you just couldn't have the same protest in mind. You could gather and be six feet apart, and as long as you aren't attending the same demonstration, you could do that. Well, that violates the First Amendment because there's no... Um, 
rational or you know we have different levels of, of analysis i won't go into that today but um there's no basis for making that distinction well we sued and um the court ruled against us and the trial level and we went to the second circuit court of appeals probably the second most important court of appeals among all of the various courts of appeals behind dc because it gets a lot of important financial cases and otherwise and um in the course of that appeal, we had the George Floyd protest. And guess what? Cuomo and de Blasio and the, and the New York Police Department embraced those protesters and those demonstrators, encouraged them. And in the case of the New York Police Department and the mayor of New York, they actually participated in those without masks, without social distancing. So on appeal, the New York Second Circuit, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which deals with New York um, federal court appeals, said, um, you know, to the attorneys for the state and the city, you know, you guys, your explanations for the distinction here don't make any sense. But we're going to send this back down because the original complaint didn't actually allege the facts about George Floyd. So we dismissed the appeal. We went back down and we refiled the complaint. And this time we pointed out that the facts are even worse now because you've got this clear discrimination between George Floyd protesters and our client who wanted to protest against the COVID-19 protocols. And that's viewpoint-based discrimination, the worst kind. You can't get around that as a government. And for obvious reasons. The government shouldn't be able to pick and choose between viewpoints it allows and viewpoints it doesn't. So we filed the complaint and the um, we asked for a injunctive injunctive relief and it was denied by the trial court. We went back on appeal and um, for a strange thing occurred on on appeal. When the, when the appellate judges kept asking Cuomo and de Blasio lawyers, how do you make this distinction? They couldn't. So finally, one of the judges who happened to be an Obama appointee, the other two were Trump appointees, said- well, well, I didn't let, let him get away with that. Was, yeah. Gonna explain. It's, 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 it's disturbing, it's troubling to me. He literally turned to the attorneys on the Zoom call and said, you don't, you wouldn't really enforce this against Ms. Geller, AFLC's American Freedom Law Center's client, and in the face of not enforcing against George Floyd, and they both essentially said, no, we're not going to enforce it against Ms. Geller. So they said, well, Ms. Geller, you don't really have um, a reason for injunction because both sides, the defendants, the state and the city say they're not gonna enforce it against you. So you can still litigate the underlying issue was the ban against your demonstrations a violation of the First Amendment or not? But you don't get an injunction because an injunction simply prevents them from doing it going forward. And they've told us in court they're not going to enforce it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. after, by the way, after the judge really encouraged them to degree, yeah. to agree with what he was yeah. suggesting that they actually do, even though right. that wasn't their position at the beginning of the argument, and the two Trump judges were all over them, 
And this well, was one of those arguments that was going very favorably. Then all of a sudden, here comes the uh, Obama judge who bailed him out. And right. the fact that the Trump judges let him bail him out, it was was uh, disappointing is a polite way to put it. And it was, well, it was because you were arguing and you did marvelously. And I was I was watching the uh, the argument and I was just shaking my head going, you got to be kidding me. Right. And, and to let our audience know how bad it was, the when the Obama judge asked this, the, the state lawyer said, well, we're going to leave enforcement up to the city. In other words, he just kicked the can back to them. And so then the judge asked the city lawyer for de Blasio and the police chief, well, are you really going to enforce this against Mr. Ushami's client? And she, she was a young lady. She said, well, your honor. And she stumbled and stumbled. Finally said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow you 24 hours to go back and convince your people effectively. This is what he was saying, not literally to go back and convince your people not to enforce it. And then you don't have to worry about this injunction. So 24 hours later, the city came back with a letter to the court and said, we're not going to enforce it. Now think about what that says. The city was still claiming that the order against public demonstrations other than George Floyd were illegal, but they had already made the exception for George Floyd, but now they were carving out another exception for our client just to kill the, the, in, the case for an injunction. Yeah, they, they, didn't, still, they didn't say this was repealed. They didn't repeal the order. They right. didn't say the order's invalid, nothing. The order's still in effect, but we're going to carve out, since we carve out an exception for them, we're going to carve it out for you. Without you can legislation, right. just by letter to the court. This right. is, I just want our, our listeners and viewers to understand the nonsense that we have to deal with litigating these cases. I guarantee you, you know, lawyer, you know, ACLU lawyers and I, they don't have to deal with the same things we're dealing with. When we win one of these cases in the appellate court, it takes a lot of work because we are swimming up tide, you know, upstream, fighting the tides all the time at every turn. So even so when we get, you know, two out of the three judges that favor us. So now look what happened. So we had to go back down to the trial court to, to, to have litigated for future purposes, because you know we have variants of COVID, we're gonna have other viruses, God forbid. And so we don't want our First Amendment liberties stolen from us in the name of public health. So the when we went back down to the trial court to litigate, was their behavior a violation of the First Amendment? Well, no question it was. You cannot allow George Floyd protest and not allow our clients protest. And the trial judge, listen to the oral argument, you can bet on that, or certainly had a clerk. And so he heard how the judges were, were leaning in our favor. And so the defendants filed a motion to dismiss, essentially arguing, well, now that we allow the protest, you don't have to decide this case, Your Honor, just kick it out. It's, you know, don't worry about any past violations because they weren't meaningful. The judge, this was now, what, a year ago? <laughs> Almost a year ago? The like judge it. is sitting on it. He's not ruling. Their motion to dismiss has been fully briefed and argued, and he's just sitting on it. And the reason he's sitting on it, in my view, is that he knows that if he rules in our favor, it's going to get reversed on appeal. And so what he's waiting for is one of two things. You know, if, he, if he rules against us, it's going to be reversed. Right, ruled against us. Yeah. Is, right, I'm sorry. So 
What he's waiting for, in my he doesn't view, want to rule in our favor at all. Right? He doesn't want to rule in our favor. No. So Not this judge. waiting for COVID to be completely over. And then he'll say, well, it's all moot. And he'll take his risk there. He won't rule against us. He'll just say, well, the, you know, it's no longer a case in controversy. COVID's over, um, you know, and I'll, I'll, you don't have standing to argue about what happened and that you weren't really going to protest anyway. Some of the old arguments we heard from him. Or, and this is the stretch, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm only hypothesizing now, Trump, during his short term in office, four years, one term, was able to appoint a lot of judges to the trial and appellate courts. And he appointed a lot of judges to the Second Circuit, which is why on one of our appeals, we had two Trump appointees out of three. And in one, we had three Trump appointees out of three. I think he's waiting for Biden and all of his appointees to restack the Second Circuit. You bet your bottom dollar he's going to do that so that there's a greater likelihood that he'll get Biden appointees who will, you know, rule willy-nilly against us so that he isn't reversed. That's my hypothesis, my, my hypothesis. I could be wrong. And maybe he's struggling with the great factual and legal issues confronting him. I am saying that tongue in cheek, of course, because you cannot allow George Floyd protesters and participate in them and deny our client and claim that's not a violation of the First Amendment. You cannot make that argument with a straight face. So that's, I think he's waiting on the mootness thing. That's And that's what's happening with a lot of these cases now. They right. sit on them, they take forever, and then they'll say, oh, you know, like here in Michigan, they just lifted all the restrictions. Oh, th you know, thank you, Governor Gretchen Whitmer. I heard, you know, some newscast is saying, oh, uh, Governor Whitmer is going to now let us do, you know, such and let such. He's going to let us do this? Oh, right. What are you talking about? He's going to let us do this. Right. right? The and tyrant again, is, it's, it's crazy that this is, this is, the, this is where, where our thinking is going now. But they're releasing all these restrictions and all these challenges we have. We're going to get all these motions. Oh, it's moot. Well, Judge, you sat on the thing for six months, and I couldn't get it. You know, you wouldn't rule on my injunction. And now the, the case is moot, So, and you're just going to wait on it and not do your job. And so that way the, he can just say, oh, it's moot, and, and dismiss it on, uh, on uh, ju uh, jurisdiction grounds. It's, right. And now before I move to Page v. Cuomo quickly, um, I just want to harken back to last week, and I recommend listeners who have an interest in political philosophy as it relates to contemporary issues to listen to that. Because the idea of the government allowing us, giving us a freedom, allowing us to protest, allowing us not to wear the mask. In other words, that our liberty is from the state, is given to us from the state, is exactly the reverse of our founding, where God gave us inalienable rights in creation. And those are ours. And we simply give to the government, to our political society, certain very discrete powers. They don't give us anything. We gave them. That's why we call it a government for the people, by the people. What's the? Of the people. Yeah. Of the people. <laughs> Maybe not in that order. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but the fact is, is, is those expressions are important. And it's been reversed and turned on its head in modern in modern times. So the, the second case that's just out there pending is Page v. Cuomo. One of the things that um, Governor Cuomo imposed during the COVID um, uh, crisis was anyone coming to the state of New York 
from certain other states that had high risk, high infection rates, had to, when they arrived in New York, quarantine, essentially house arrest for two weeks. And of course, we sued on a variety of grounds, not the least of which it imposed a burden on interstate travel. Um, and um, it was in effect house arrest. And the exceptions and the arbitrariness of who and, and when one had to go into this house arrest once you arrived in New York were, were entirely arbitrary. And they weren't based on any science um, or, or anything tangible. And indeed, we, we, we know what happened with those uh, protocols, those orders, that they changed constantly. They kept flipping and flopping. One state would, would, would go in, would go out, go in and go out. Then they started, when we sued, they started changing those rules back and forth so that they could keep saying to us, well, though, uh, you know, the state of Arizona, you know, your client from the state of Arizona no longer is, has to quarantine. But then a week later, they do have to quarantine. So we sued on behalf of our client. And um, we, again, lost at the trial level when we sought injunctive relief to allow our client to travel to New York during a window that she had to travel. That was the only opportunity she had. And then we went up on appeal when we lost. And I will say that at least at this level, the trial judge in the Northern District of New York really did struggle with the law. He pointed to certain problems, but again, out of fear. And the default by a judge is no different than the default by a bureaucrat. The fear of a public health crisis will invariably lead government figures in power to restrict our liberty and not give us the freedom to choose what we're willing to subject ourselves to or not. So we went up on appeal and we had first appealed and sought an injunction so that the government couldn't impose their rules during the appeal process, which can take months. Well, um, because they had flip-flopped on the rule and Arizona at that moment did not people from Arizona, our client did not have to quarantine. So the court said, we're not going to issue an injunction because she can travel during this week. Um, but um, we're, the appeal stands. So then the governor and his lawyers decided, well, we got that far. Let's file a motion to dismiss the appeal on the grounds that we're, we're still allowing Arizona people not to quarantine. We could still impose quarantine a week from now, a day from now, but for right now, she could travel. She could jump on a plane and make all the necessary arrangements in 24 hours and get out here. That motion to dismiss, the motions panel said, that's too hot to handle for us. We're going to give that to the merits panel, meaning the group that the, of the three judges who are actually going to hear the substance of the law on the appeal. Well, guess what? That was six months ago or more. And the merits panel is just sitting on the motion to dismiss. And there's nothing to be done. There's no briefing to be done. The case is stayed until the motion to dismiss is heard and decided by the merits panel. 
So we're sitting in abeyance at the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, just like we're sitting on holding in a holding pattern at the trial court level in Geller. It is the kind of agreed upon approach by this by the New York courts, federal courts. Let's just sit on these cases. Let's wait till COVID becomes a distant memory, and then we can rule however we're going to rule. Yeah, and 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 moot the cases out because most of the time, in in most of these cases, just a little. Um con law 101 they're against uh, these are uh, restrictions imposed by the governors so there are restrictions imposed by state officials not uh, you know not city officials although in some we have with city officials but by and large they're state officials and so all you can you because of the 11th amendment um, you can only they have immunity from from damage claims in federal court you can only sue them in, in federal court for prospective relief, meaning looking forward for declaratory and injunctive relief. And, and, and that's, you know, that's a, that's a huge issue because as we mentioned, you know, when they're waiting and waiting and waiting to make rulings on these restrictions and, and if it's going to be prospective looking forward, and then next thing you know, like, you know, here in Michigan on this past Tuesday, uh, Governor Whitmer listed all the restrictions while well, restrictions are no longer in place. Well, there's no longer a need for an injunction. Well, what happens? The case gets dismissed as moot on jurisdiction ground. The court no longer has any jurisdiction. And so, so many of these cases are, are being held in limbo and they're likely gonna be, you know, there's gonna be a finding of the, the case is moot and so the judge can just, you know, take it off his, uh, take it off his docket. One other thing that's interesting with this uh, Page uh, v. Cuomo case about the travel restriction. Early on in the pandemic, when New York was the epicenter, continues to be in many ways epicenter, um, I think it was the, the governor of Rhode Island made a comment that, you know, when, when cars are coming into the state, they're going to they're gonna look and see if they have a New York license plate, and they were going to, you know, keep them from coming into New York because too many people in the, New York City had the, you know, had the virus more so than in Rhode Island. Well, Cuomo went off. I mean, he went off on a rant. Of, this is the United States of America. We don't impose these kind of restrictions on interstate travel. This would be unconstitutional. We'll sue you the moment you do this, right? And here's the guy who put in place the uh, travel restrictions. These guys are such hypocrites, lying hypocrites, all of them, all these leftists, left-wing you know, uh, governors and politicians. It's unbelievable. You can't make this stuff up. You can't. And what did, what did their lawyers say in court? Yeah. Well, Your Honor, you should ignore what our client said about being unconstitutional. Well, he's not a lawyer. He's just the governor of the state of New York, for goodness sakes. And by the way, he is a lawyer. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I've got a, a list more of, of cases, but I'm only going to cover two since we're on the COVID. I've got several others, but there's just two that I'm going to, um, because we're, we're running out of time uh, once again. The first one is uh, is Beamer versus Whitmer, Governor Whitmer. This is one of our first lawsuits challenging these uh, tyrannical COVID restrictions. It was filed last, uh, not this past April, but April of uh, 2020 against our inept governor, Gretchen Whitmer. The lawsuit challenged, among other things, the restrictions. And this was one of the notorious, one of the worst, um, you know, uh, emergency orders of any governor. She was restricting people from going, you know, up northern Michigan has some beautiful lakes and, and a lot of people have cottages up in up in northern Michigan. You know, this is that's the country up there. And she was restricting people from traveling from their home. Like if you lived in Ann Arbor, for example, and you had a, uh, you know, a cottage, you know, up by uh, Traverse City or some other one of these other you know beautiful spots, you couldn't travel to your cottage. 
And apparently the, the rationale was, you know, you might stop having to get gas, you'll grab the gas pump and somehow that'll transfer the disease to somebody else. So you couldn't travel interstate to your very own property. So you couldn't travel from, you know, if you're in an area where there, where you had greater concerns of COVID and you decide, you know, I want to go up to my, my cabin in the woods and just kind of hang out up there and hide out there, you couldn't do that. But if you lived in, you know, Toledo, Ohio or Chicago, and you happen to have a, you know, a beautiful cottage on, a cottage on uh, Lake Chalavoy, which is a beautiful area, you could travel all the way across the state and do it. I mean, it was, it was so irrational. She even went so far as to say, you know, you can, you can put your boat in the lake, but you can't put your boat in the lake if it has a motor on it. So you can row it and paddle, but you can't run the motor on your boat. And apparently, again, because of the, of the uh, you know, you, you'd have to go to a gas station and get gas for it. She, uh, she shut down businesses like landscape businesses. I mean, talk about, I mean, you're out there on, a, on your tractor out in the middle of the field in the woods, yet, you know, the uh, pet stores were open. So if you want to go get, you know, goldfish food, you could. Liquor stores were open. The stores that sold lotto tickets remained open. All of the abortion centers remained open, even though she, she uh, shut off, quote unquote, non-essential um, non uh, medical and surgeries, which, which practically killed the health industry. Right, the hospitals are, are dying out here, going bankrupt because they they couldn't get any of the you know the work they needed to pay the bills. And uh, one of the other things she considered gun stores to be non-essential. So you couldn't you know again you couldn't uh, exercise your First Amendment right and go purchase a firearm or or purchase a uh, you know ammunition for a firearm. But I could go to a I could drive to a pet store and you know buy goldfish food. Or go buy beer at your liquor store. Yeah, uh, <laughs> or a lotto ticket or you know any of these other things. And and she also restricted you know family gatherings for purposes of worship. So on the eve of our motion for a preliminary injunction, um, challenging all of these restrictions. In fact, I was one of the plaintiffs suing uh, on number on on two of the grounds. I had I had two uh, clients who had cottages up north. One of the clients also owned a landscaping business, and uh, you know I'm from a big family. I have 12 kids, 12 grandkids, and we gather every Sunday to worship as a as a family to pray, and um, and also you know I'm a big advocate of the Second Amendment. Uh, have a lot of firearms, need to buy ammunition, and wasn't allowed to do that. So I sued on my behalf, challenging the restrictions on travel to gun stores. Uh, many of the gun stores basically thumbed their nose at her and said, we're going to stay open, um, and challenged her to come shut them down. She didn't. Um, so, you know, I, I, uh, I'm glad they were willing to do that. But the restriction wasn't just on the gun stores. The restriction, if I got in my car and drove to a gun store, I wasn't allowed to leave my home to go to a gun store. I could have been ticketed on the way. So we, we sued. I was one of the plaintiffs, as well as, again, my other two, other two clients. And on the eve of our motion preliminary injunction, Governor Whitmer blinked. She entered into a, con, a consent order signed by the judge, uh, rescinding every one of those restrictions uh, that we challenged. And so then after doing that, she uh, asked us to dismiss the lawsuit because, of course, now we don't have any, uh, any need for prospective relief. Well, we refused. And this is one of the arguments that's going to come up in all these cases with the, with the mootness. And we're arguing there's a doctrine known as the voluntary cessation doctrine. Meaning, and this particularly applies when, when you're not talking about legislation, which, which has to go through the whole process, you know, pass typically to, you know, a, a, a house, uh, you know, state house, state senate, and then, get, and then get approved by the governor. When you have legislation that's passed and then they repeal that legislation through that process, it's a good indication that the, you know, they're going to, that, that conduct's been, is, is over. So it's ceased. But when you have these ad hoc orders that are just issued by one 
tyrant, right? The, these governors who can issue executive orders with just the stroke of a pen and all of a sudden, boom, you know, we have these restrictions on liberty. They don't get that same presumption of cessation. So when they voluntarily cease their conduct, it doesn't necessarily, and this is almost a direct quote from, from a line of cases, it doesn't deprive the tribunal, the court, of the power to hear and decide the case. I mean, the case is no longer moot. The court could still have jurisdiction and principally for two reasons. One is that the, you know, the bad actor, the governor, could always return to their old ways, like David was explaining in the, the page uh, v. Cuomo, where you know, one day Arizona's on the list, the next day they're off the list. So it's back and forth, back and forth. So one, they can always return to their old, old ways without a court order. And number two, the public. The public has an interest in determining the legality of the practice. And so those are, those are two very strong arguments because this is going to become the new norm, right? We know everything's going to be a public health crisis. And so when the, governments are, the governors are exercising these incredible powers, they're tyrannical. I mean, it's almost like we have monarchies now in each of these states where the legislatures are, are kind of been, uh, you know, nullified by their, ex, their exercise of these executive powers. So we have, um, they filed the motion to dismiss on, on mootness grounds. We opposed it arguing that the voluntary cessation uh, doctrine, as well as this other doctrine called capable of repetition but evading review, meaning that this could happen again, but because they're always so short term that, uh, you know, the court needs to decide it now because it's likely to come back up again. It's, it's kind of a, it's, it's related in some respects, to, in, you know, to that mootness issue. So, and waiting for the judge to rule on, uh, on those motions. And then the last well, let me, case. Let me yes, just, before you get out, let me just jump in real quick. So, so everyone can understand. So voluntary cessation, um, in addition to the policy reasons that Rob pointed out, it's essentially a doctrine that says you can't issue unconstitutional or illegal governmental orders, force people like our clients and our organization to sue in court, go through all of that process, and then when you're about ready to lose, like they did in Geller, when they said, well, we won't enforce it against Geller, or when they kept changing in Page v. Cuomo the travel restrictions, that you can't wait until the last minute when you see you're going to lose and rescind your order and say, okay, case is moot. You can't go any further with the litigation. You got to dismiss it. And then as soon as it gets dismissed, you issue your order again and make them sue again. And then you bounce back and forth. That gamesmanship is the, is the problem that the doctrine of voluntary cessation tries to get at. And that's, um, the issue that we're dealing with on an ongoing basis. And why, by the way, just again, when we're suing Twitter and the government, we're suing as a class action because you might want to say you're going to not going to impose it against our one client, but we're representing everybody who's subject to this bad behavior. Right. And, and to David's point, the Supreme Court has made clear and actually one of the primary cases dealing with voluntary cessation that the courts have to be vigilant um, to, you know, to this sort of uh, the term they use, repentance in reform on the part of these government uh, officials that happens to be timed with the filing of the lawsuit, right? So all of a sudden you file a lawsuit, it's like, oh, yeah, uh, you know, we really didn't mean this. So we're going to, you know, we're going to rescind our, our order. But, you know, as soon as this thing's moot, we'll be right back at it again. So, and then the last one, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it short because we are running uh, long here. Um, Parker versus Wolf, which is a lawsuit we filed against uh, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf. She's of the same um, ilk of, uh, of Gretchen Whitmer and, uh, and Cuomo in New York, these left-wing tyrants. And, and he's been ruling Pennsylvania with his, uh, his iron, iron fist like a king. 
We challenged their contact tracing program and their mask uh, mandate. We filed a motion preliminary injunction. It was denied on standing grounds, which is, to me, is kind of absurd, but it's the easy way for a judge to get rid of it. And we appealed that up to the Third Circuit, um, the denial of the preliminary injunction, and um, it's scheduled for argument this September. And uh, also in the meantime, we filed the first amended complaint in the district court, um, adding additional facts to bolster our uh, challenge to the contact tracing program and to the uh, the mask mandate. And that contact tracing program is, is Orwellian. I mean, you get these, like, incredibly threatening letters in the mail. If all of a sudden somebody, you know, was positive and you somehow were within some vicinity of them, you're going to get this letter demanding that you stay in your home for 14 days under threat of law enforcement showing up your house, arrest, I mean, everything else. It's it's uh, it's great. And you, there's no even requirement for them to uh, to verify that the test was actually even a positive test. They don't even know what cycle threshold they test at for their PCR test. They use the antigen test, which is, which is uh, you know, it's not a reliable test. And there's no way for somebody who has to be quarantined, right? You, you, you got to work. You got to feed your kids. You got to pay bills. Well, no, you got to stay home for two weeks, and there's no way for you to challenge that. There's no way for you even to challenge the government's initial um, the basis for quarantining you, whether the test was even a valid test. One of our clients when and he thought he had a sinus infection. And and they took a test. He ended up showing up positive for COVID. Never had any other symptoms beyond just a slight cold. He had a you know, large family, wife, kids. Every one of them had to quarantine for 14 days. Nobody had any symptoms. Nobody. He wasn't infectious. In fact, he was allowed to go back to work. He worked for the state. He was allowed to go back to work the day that they had family got the letter and said to quarantine for 14 days. I mean, the, the, the program is just nonsense. It's a total violation of due process. And then the mask mandate, obviously. But we also added amended the complaint to challenge their, you know, vaccine policy. So this the state of uh, Pennsylvania is like so many of these other states going the direction where there's coercion, whether it's direct or indirect, to get people to get this vaccine. Even though you know our clients and their 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 families are young kids, they're not. They have no comorbidities. Um, Chad Parker already had a positive test on us. So he, so even if you have natural immunities, and this is the thing that's confounding to me. If your natural immunities aren't working, right, the way God created your, your body to fight these infections, and if you fight it successfully, those natural immunities, if those don't work, then how in the world is your vaccine going to work? Because all that is your is this mRNA coding that's telling your body to create immunities. It's telling your body unnaturally to create uh, immunities naturally for this virus, immunities that your body would have created if you had the virus. But so that, But they're putting all this pressure on individuals, even to the point it's like, if you don't have the vaccine, then you have to wear your mask, right? So it's like the government saying, all right, you want to breathe freely, get the vaccine. You don't get the vaccine, you got to wear your, you got to wear your scarlet letter, right? This mask across your face. You got to walk around in the public, unclean, unclean, right? Notifying that you're, you're one of the people that, that didn't get the vaccine, even though if you might have natural immunities. So this, this vaccine issue is really going to start coming to a, a head, and we've seen it already, as we've mentioned, you know, college students being forced to have to get a vaccine. Kids going back to school, wait to see, see what happens when they, you know, start back up in the fall. It's probably going to have to be vaccine for COVID-19. And in COVID-19, again, the vaccines, these things are experimental. Even this, even the, the, um, you know, the, the Centers for Disease Control on their, on their website makes the point that this is experimental. Again, these weren't FDA approved. They were FDA authorized under emergency use. And we're starting to see more and more. David mentioned, you know, World Health Organization. I think it's the age they said 18 and under shouldn't get the vaccine or suggesting they shouldn't because there's this huge risk for serious health concerns. And we're seeing that. So it's a, uh, these are issues. So we, we, uh, they filed a motion to dismiss, no big surprise. 
it's pretty typical and um i think i have another a week and a half to uh to respond to it so that one's in the throes of the of litigation and we've got many many more um but we've already um i think we're perhaps a little beyond our hour <laughs> that i try to keep these so david do you have any uh, any comments uh before i uh, close this out yeah i'm i'm just going to mention one uh factoid as they say um relative to uh, to the the kind of the tyrannical power that you've just described as you know i represent a, a family-owned restaurant chain fairly successful here in southern california and elsewhere and during the covid crisis um, the state health officials of the various municipalities would require um, the restaurant management to trace and report on um, whether someone has been in, had a positive COVID-19 test or came in contact with someone. So if you had an employee who came down with COVID-19, then you had to give them the names of everyone who worked in the same shift. And then you had to give them the contact information so that they could go to each of these individuals and then find out who they were in contact with to impose these quarantine requirements. Now, under the state of California state law, the ability of a um, employer to give that kind of contact information out and medical information out on your employees is very restrictive. And there was no basis that under state law that would allow an employee, employer, to give that kind of information to the public health department without a court order or something. And so every time one of the municipalities would demand that information, I would always write back to them and then have conference calls with them and their lawyers and their nurses and their public health officials saying, look, the state law says my client, the employer, cannot give that information to you. Go get a court order or fix the state law or do something, but I, I can't tell my client to do it. So what would the public health officials, typically the lead nurse and the public health officials say? after arguing over and over again, well, we can do this, we can do this. And I kept saying, show me in the law where you can do it, they couldn't. So here's what we would always get. We would get a letter saying, if you don't provide this information, we're going to have to have a public press conference and issue a press release identifying your client's restaurant as being a source of infection and et cetera. So in other words, we'll kill your business Distortion. Yeah. We'll turn you into, as Rob called it, the scarlet. We'll turn you into the unclean infection site and you won't have any customers. And so you don't have to worry about state law anymore. Every single time. Now we worked out compromises where we would get our employee on the phone. If they wanted to give their contact information, they could, but that's the kind of tyrannical power grabbing that takes place and took place through this crisis yeah you can't make this stuff up it's frightening and uh you know we're fighting it every day trying to do do our our best to maintain those freedoms and those liberties right our tagline fighting for faith and freedom and that's that's what we do so that's all the time we have today and as always we look forward to our next discussion we thank all of you for joining us 
Um, as you know, our video casts are posted on our Rumble and YouTube channels, and our podcasts are posted on Spotify and Stitcher, Faith and Freedom Fighters. So if you like the content, please follow us and please spread the word. Uh, thank you again, and may God bless you, and may he continue to bless America. Amen.